This week on Rebuilders, we are looking at a rather complex topic. Yeah. We're finishing out our neoliberalism series by looking at what's happened since October 7th in Israel and Gaza and what this means for the global order and what this means for the culture and, you know, understanding what is the lay of the land in in this in this conflict. And um, yeah, so I'll be setting that out for you today. All right, let's get into it. Hi, welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here with Daniel and Mark. How are you both? Good. We're, yeah. we're a bit tired, aren't we? That's, mm. We haven't had the podcast for a few weeks. I was on break last week and we've had our 24-7 prayer national gathering we were all part of. And yes. Lots happening. So apologies we haven't been around. Not that we should apologize. No, but, you know, acknowledge yeah, it. Acknowledge. Yeah. Yep. No apology, but an acknowledging. <laughs> Uh, it was great to meet some listeners at yeah. the um, national mm. gathering. Thank yeah. you for coming up and saying hi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. I feel like, um, yeah, you you often get to do that mm. with um, travel and stuff. So yeah, I think both Daniel and I had the joy of being able to do that as well, which yeah. we're really grateful for. Yeah, and it's always like just so it, it, it's super encouraging because reality is it's three of us here in this <laughs> studio, mm. kind of sharing <laughs> thoughts and. Um, but just to hear the way that that's actually really landing and yeah. um, helping shape people's perspective and mm. ministries and what to be praying for and all these type of things. Is, yeah. Um, spurs me on. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this the other week too. Like I, I can't remember if I – apologies if I'm repeating myself. Lots of apologies today. <laughs> um, but I did some uh, an event for some Czech leaders too here in Melbourne mm. and met some Czech Republic listeners as well. So, yeah. Hello to everyone all over the place. Yeah, mm. all over the place. And, yeah, I guess thanks to God for how he is using us and yeah. um, may we continue to walk in his way in oh, this. Amen. Mm. Uh, so today, um, well, the, <laughs> as always, there's a lot happening in the world. Um, yes. And one significant thing that we are going to focus on Today, um, obviously, the conflict occurring in um, the Middle East between Israel and, um, yeah, how, how, how do I – I don't know how Hamas. to say that. And Hamas, Hamas yes. should I say that? Well, yeah, yeah we'll get but, into the details. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, obviously, on this podcast, we've been talking about compounding crises in the world um, and grey zone, the nature of grey zone, and yeah, this is this is a real, I mm. guess, uh, coming together of all mm. of that. Um, mm. Another example of what is what is really occurring um, mm. in the world, like geopolitically. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, how about Mark? Can you can you kick yeah. us off with a bit of an overview? Yeah. Well, I just want, I just want to say to frame this in a particular way. I think sure. we have been sort of exploring neoliberalism, which effectively is is a word of the economic and I think political order that mm-hmm. you know we've been in you know for the last twenty or thirty years. And uh, you know, there's a great book called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, whose author has temporarily I've forgotten. Daniel will find, but he talks about you know when there is a dominant political order, everything is shaped by it, and even those ideologies and other ways of doing things which are different from it I still have to react to it mm. you know and I think we're coming to the end of the sort of neoliberal orders as we've understood it and uh, you know we're moving into this gray zone so I think that's the framework we're going to look at what we're doing today um, it's interesting too because you know speaking about uh, Israel speaking about Palestine speaking about this issue inevitably is a huge 
controversial issue. Yeah. And, um, you know, what we're seeing, and we'll talk about this, is that however you talk about it, the facts are disputed and mm-hmm. it's contentious and it's conflicted. And, um, you know, very much if you look at how this is playing out on the ground and there's an actual battle and people have lost their lives and, um, you know, there's tremendous suffering and tragedy. Um, uh, but I just also want to say what's interesting is we have just had an what could be called an ethnic cleansing in the uh, uh, enclave um, called uh, Nagano-Karabakh, uh, which is an Armenian enclave. And Azerbaijan effectively uh, moved you know, hundreds of thousands of people out, uh, uh, Armenian people out of that enclave mm-hmm. and virtually no mention uh, mm-hmm. in the global yeah, media. Wow. Uh, we also have a significant, significant war in Sudan. Um, again, uh, thousands of people killed. Um, you have many of the world's superpowers at play there. Interesting, a report came out that even Ukrainian special forces have been spotted uh, sniping against Russian, Russian Wagner mercenaries in Sudan, in Africa, yeah. uh, connected to uh, you know oil and gold mm-hmm. um, and tremendous, tremendous suffering, uh, but rarely mentioned. Yeah. Um, uh, Pakistan, which has had a large um, uh, Afghan refugee population come into Pakistan, has just given the order for, I think, 1.6 million Afghans to leave the country and go back to Afghanistan. A huge removal of a refugee population. Again, uh, no mention of it barely in, in the international media. So one thing that, you know, I just I say all that for a particular reason, that um, there is something about this conflict which links into other things. Mm. And, and in some ways it has deep uh, symbolism and idealism for religious and political reasons, which is why we're talking about it. And that rather than Sudan is, uh, you know, or, or, you know, what's happening in Armenia and Azerbaijan uh, or in the Sahel with, you know, various African uh, republics which have had various coups. So there's something about this which is uh, deeply, deeply resonant in the world. Mm. And we'll pass, there's so much we could talk about. We could talk about this for, for hours, but. Um, just to give you an overview, effectively, uh, the reason we're here is that on October the 7th, um, Hamas, which is the uh, sort of uh, authority but also uh, militant uh, terrorist organisation which controls Gaza, uh, launched a sort of stunning raid into uh, Israel. Uh, which uh, attacked some military installations, but also uh, many civilians, and uh, with horrifying uh, uh, sort of casualties of children. And I'm not going to go into the details, you can find them online, but just absolutely sort of barbaric attack against civilians. Um, and I think it was around 1,400 civilians were killed. Uh, in Israel. Israel uh, then went into a period of shock. Israel was seen as one of the world's sort of most staunchly, uh, you know, observant militaries in terms of guarding those borders. And it was a shock that they actually got through in such a way. And uh, also the Israel's intelligence services, the Shin Bet and particularly the Mossad are sort of lauded as the world's best, you know, mm. and the fact that this sort of just came out of the blue and they didn't detect it was incredible. Um, instantly, people knew that this was going to, you know, create a firestorm because Israel was already being rocked by a political scandal. The uh, 
uh, leader of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, had uh, had significant protests against him around the legitimacy of his rule. And he's been in power for some time, uh, but he'd increasingly uh, began to sort of seek alliances with further right elements within the political establishment in mm-hmm. Israel, particularly on the sort of ultra-Orthodox right. So you'd seen this very similar to what you've seen in America, you know, sort of um, this protest movement and, you know, different courts ruling and and this was ongoing. So you had it already destabilized Israel entering into this and a sense that Israel was wounded, um, that it was going to have to respond. And um, we've seen that response militarily into, as of recording, it's been really a campaign of bombing and then um, some sort of incursions into Gaza, uh, the Gaza Strip, which is where many Palestinians uh, live. And uh, yeah, as yet we're to see a ground invasion um, and taking over of the the Gaza Strip, and many people are predicting that uh, is going to happen. Uh, so in some ways, this is this that is the the facts on the ground, but then they intersect with a whole bunch of other realities that mm-hmm. are happening in the Middle East. In the Middle East, nothing's ever simple. It links into other realities. So yeah. uh, we have seen that happen. So Hamas, as an organization, is supported by uh, the you know Iranian Islamic Republic and the IRGC and um, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, which is the military wing of the Iranian Republic, has spent a lot of money and a lot of time over the last decade building up a series of proxies, which is basically forces that fight on behalf. So Hamas is a proxy of, it's a Palestinian organization, it's Islamist. Um, Traditionally, some of the Palestinian liberation organizations, such as the PLO and Fatah, um, were organizations that tended to be more political in their ideology, tended to be more uh, based on uh, political means. They had military wings, mm-hmm. um, but they were more, in a sense, secular, for want of a better term. I say that loosely because the Middle East and people were still religious. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and, and they came out of the liberation sort of tradition that you sort of saw. Um, so there was, you know, there was terrorist, um, uh, you know, activity that occurred in the 1970s, 1960s, uh, led by organizations like the PLO. But Hamas is an Islamist uh, organization. So it comes from a radical Islamic perspective, uh, which is more akin to Al-Qaeda or uh, the Islamic State or Daesh um, in their sort of ideology. So they're supported by Iran. But also what we have in, in Lebanon, um, when uh, Israel was settled, you had uh, uh, Palestinians who were displaced move into, into uh, Lebanon. And uh, there has grown up uh, what's called the Party of God uh, or Hezbollah, as it's better known, which is a political organization. It's a social organization, but it's also a military uh, proxy for Iran. And that has quite a significant fighting force. And so we're still seeing a low level uh, sort of military engagement between Israel and Hezbollah. It hasn't kicked off. But one of the real concerns is that Hezbollah is significantly bigger than Hamas. Uh, that if Israel then becomes engaged with Hezbollah, you've got basically uh, engagement on two fronts, which in war is mm. never good. Mm. To complicate things, you've also got other Iranian proxies. So uh, a part of what is called the axis of resistance by the Iranians. So uh, if you remember back, uh, Donald Trump uh, gave the orders to kill uh, the uh, Iranian uh, commander, Soleimani, mm-hmm. um, and he attacked him in a drone attack in in Iraq. Uh, But what Soleimani had been doing is building up these proxies. And in one sense, they create a sort of land bridge from Iran all the way to the Mediterranean. 
but also in a sense they sort of surround Israel. So you have the Houthi rebels in Yemen, um, which is actually quite far. When you look at a map, you know, there's Saudi Arabia, which is quite big in between uh, Yemen and um, uh, Israel. But the Houthi rebels are, are backed by Iran and they've been firing missiles, not heaps, but they've fired some missiles towards Israel. And then you also in Iraq, uh, where you have a Shia, um, so it's, it's, uh, Islam is split into two sort of, you know, uh, there's subdivisions, but two sort of larger schools of Sunni and Shia of Islam, brands of Islam. And so you've got Shia aligned, Iran is Shia, uh, sort of Iranian-backed proxies in Iraq, and you also have them in Syria. Mm. So Israel is surrounded by Iranian uh, proxies and you have engagements that has already occurred. Now, what has also happened is that you have – had engagements between the United States military in Iraq and Syria and Iranian proxies. So this is bubbling along. It's at a, it's not at a high level of full-blown war, uh, but where we are at the point is that, you know, the US has moved significant assets as well as other NATO countries into the Mediterranean. Uh, so you're at this point where you're sort of pause where something bigger could happen. Mm. Uh, there's obviously a sort of strategic alliance between Iran and Russia in the war in Ukraine, uh, Iran has been supplying particular kinds of drones uh, to the Russian forces. And uh, there is this sort of out there, how strong is it? We don't exactly know, but some sort of alliance between China, Russia and Iran as well, which is also has concern. Russia has you know, sort of equipped some of its fighters. Russia has been involved in Syria and has had a presence in the Middle East. And uh, you know, they've equipped some of their fighters with aircraft carrying, destroying missiles. Uh, so where we are at a point geopolitically is that we're in a very, very dangerous position. Mm. And uh, the sense that is if if uh, there's, if Israel fully goes into the Gaza Strip, that that could uh, trigger a, a regional war um, between the Iranian proxies. Also, uh, obviously, you've got other countries like Saudi, uh, UAE, Qatar, which houses a lot of the leadership of uh, Hamas, uh, Jordan is feeling some destabilization uh, occurring. So you have a conflict, whereas the Ukraine conflict, you were surrounded by other nations like Poland and the Baltics and so on, which weren't as destabilized and had the potential for destabilization. Yeah. But the problem with this conflict is there's tremendous uh, potential for destabilization around those countries. Mm. So the real concern is you have this initial action, which is which is terrible, and it's obviously this action happens in the whole tapestry of history, which goes back to yeah. uh, the emergence of uh, you know uh, Zionism in Palestine uh, at the end of the 19th century when Theodore Herzl, who was really the sort of grandfather of the idea of Zionism, which is a, a, a political, social and religious ideas. And there's different emphases with different people of the Jewish people returning to their homeland. Mm. Um, I'll stop there before I go into a history of that. That's just a general overview of where we're at in terms of politically and militarily. Thank you. That's a very helpful um, <laughs> overview. Um, some stuff I, I didn't know or understand before. So that's that's really helpful. Um, before you mentioned that obviously this particular conflict is different to some of the other ones that are going on, in what other ways yeah. is it different? So th there is a, a resonance that this conflict has socially, politically and religiously. Um, in, in Jerusalem, 
you know, you have very much the three Abrahamic religions have a stake in the ground. Mm. You know, you have the Wailing Wall. Obviously, Jerusalem was, you know, the biblical city of David and and is where the temple was. And, you know, you have the Wailing Wall, which is evidence of the temple, you mm. know. Uh, you also have the Al-Quds um, Mosque, also the Al-Asqa Mosque, sorry, uh, uh, on the sort of, Temple Mount, mm-hmm. um, which is a really significant site in uh, Islam. And uh, you also have um, a Christian presence in Jerusalem as well. You know, it's, it's also, you know, very important to those sort of three religions. So anything around that that piece of, of, of real estate <laughs> has yeah. tremendous, you know, religion socially. Uh, there has been, you know, a, a, a sad history um, of at times Christian persecution of the Jewish people. One of the reasons that Zionism begins is because uh, Jewish people experienced, you know, and you go right back, um, uh, back to you know the medieval period and so on. There were things pogroms, mm-hmm. but particularly in the 19th century, you can go back to even Martin Luther. Um, you know, one of his last books was really a terrible sort of screed against the Jewish people, and uh, Jewish people were banned at different times from you know. Uh, certain professions, mm-hmm. um, but if you fast forward to one period of anti-Semitism uh, in Russia, um, in many ways the sort of emergence of what we call fascism today, you could trace back to 19th century Russia where you had, you know, the groups like the Black Hundreds and there were these groups which in a sense started these these anti-Jewish pogroms mm-hmm. and um, Jews, were, Jews were killed and it was quite a terrible time and this took some Jewish people to begin to move to Israel, move back to Israel. There was already an existing Jewish community in Israel who lived alongside uh, Muslims who were the majority but also Christians as well. There's other, other uh, groups such as Druze. Um, uh, and in many ways, what was going on was that as the idea of nationalism took off in Europe, you had the collapse of empires. Mm-hmm. Empires were coming to their ends. Uh, and that was really sped up by World War One, with the collapse of you know many of the sort of empires losing their power, including the Ottoman Empire, which controlled a lot of the Middle East. Uh, but what was happening, Herder, who was a, a thinker, had really sort of had this idea of again, almost against modernity. Modernity was seen as people who were placeless, uh, many of the cities in Europe weren't actually representative of the kinds of people we would associate with those nations now. So in a sense that cities were often places where you'd meet English people or German people or Jewish people, lots of trade and connection and mm-hmm. connectivity, universities. And really this sort of thought pushing back against modernity, which seemed rootless and based in sort of money, was this idea that, well, we need to discover what are our real roots, you know, who are the indigenous people of these lands? You know, what's their language? What's their folk tales? Uh, who are the Latvians? You know, who are the real French people? You know, had all these sort of mm-hmm. different ideas. And um, this is a nationalism begins as sort of empire begins to fall. But part of the problem was that is that then people who sort of said, we're the people of this land, we're the people of this tongue, uh, we're the people of this ethnic blood, um, you know, started looking at the cities and saw people and they looked at people like Jewish people and started casting them as, oh, they're rootless, they're cosmopolitan, they're just involved in money. So Jewish people found themselves caught up in this critique of modernity. Um, and uh, you saw then in some ways a reaction to that as people moved back to Israel. But then also what you saw was some of those ideas sort of catch on in Zionism. Well, we need our own land. We need to rediscover mm-hmm. the Hebrew tongue. Hebrew had many ways sort of dropped out of um, use apart from in religious um, sort of in- in- environments. So 
You've got a large diaspora of Jewish people who obviously, uh, whether have returned to Israel or not, are connected into, mm-hmm. into the idea of Israel. You also have a large Palestinian diaspora all across the world, uh, even in places like South America. So part of what we've seen in this is this then connects into those diaspora communities. You've yep. seen that in Australia. You've seen Jewish uh, Australian sort of, uh, you know, marches of support and you've seen Palestine marches of support in some of our major cities, seen that in America, seen that in South America, seen that in Africa, Europe. Um, but then also politically, this is one of the great sort of struggles, you know, uh, that in many ways the Western order has often aligned itself with Israel, particularly American politically has mm-hmm. aligned itself with Israel. It hasn't always been an easy um, uh, sort of uh, uh, connection, but particularly uh, one of the things that um, really, in a sense, moved the establishment of a, a Jewish state of Israel along was, you know, the Holocaust. Mm. And so in 1949, the sort of Balfour Declaration, you have the establishment of a Jewish state in Israel, 1948, 1949. Um, and so part of the West's struggle with itself is like, hang on, how did Germany the land of you know so much thinking and great composers and theologians and you know of Goethe and you know all these all these sort of people. How did it how did it birth the Holocaust? So deeply connected to this question of Judaism as the minority in Europe. There's so much of critical theory and all this is this reflection on how did we you know create the Holocaust? You know, mm. um, but then on the left, Palestine has been this this long connected with story of of oppression and and, uh, the oppressed and the oppressor, many sort of uh, liberation movements. So as empires collapsed uh, and that continued on into the 20th century, you know, you had that sort of movement of nationalism, also decolonization occur in the two-thirds world. Uh, and so there was an alliance as things happened in Algeria. Um, you saw, you know, sort of nationalism and in, in, in decolonization happen in, in Africa and sort of these revolutionary movements of the left, um, you know, many inspired by sort of Mao's teaching mm-hmm. on, on guerrilla warfare. And then, you know, the reflected people like Franz Fanon and these different people who, who looked at this sort of tradition in the left, Palestine became one of the key issues that people rallied around. Mm-hmm. So, for example, there was a terrorist group called the Red uh, Japanese Red Army who came out of Japan, and they were Japanese radical left students who went to Palestine and said, "Use us, we'll be your terrorists." And mm-hmm. there was the Lod Airport massacre, which the Japanese Red Army were the willing foot soldiers of the Palestinian issue. So mm-hmm. that's why it's politically, so socially, politically, religiously. Uh, I don't want to use the word meme because it just seems so facile, but in a sense, it is like a, a meme in the truest sense of the word. In this, that's an image that then connects to all these other images that is is used in all these different ways. So I don't mean yeah. that in the. I'm just very careful in how I'm saying that, but I think people will get the nuance of what I'm meaning. So, instantly, what this has done is it just connects into so many of a culture war issues. So, at yes. a moment of culture war, it is Israel Palestine is like one of the great cultural issues in the world. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. everyone has an opinion on this. Um, and and also, sorry, I'd add one other thing. For the Islamic world, um, you know, this has been a, a, a real issue that as seen as as Islam, which had its sort of ascendancy sort of, you know, during the, the medieval period up to the even sort of the 18th century, and then sort of seen as the West has sort of risen, Palestine has been a symbol of what is seen as the oppression of the Islamic mm-hmm. world. So you've seen massive protests in Turkey and, and all these places, even though it gets a bit complex with Saudi Arabia and Iran, I won't sure. get into that right now. Again, a very long answer because it's a very complex issue of, <laughs> of why, yeah. 
Uh, so, I, well, I, one of the main things that you've kind of talked about there is the it being such a significant culture war issue yes. and that's something that we've talked about time and again yes. um, in Grey Zone and these mm. these escalating crises end up being these, these talking points and tension yes. points in the culture. Um, do you... <laughs> Like where are we at with that? Yeah. Where, where do we go from here? Yeah. Okay. So I, I was watching uh, the American TV show The Circus, the greatest yep. political show on earth, and effectively for those who have – listeners who have seen the show and those who haven't, I'll explain it. It's like a weekly sort of documentary show with a number of sort of people who follow what's going on in American politics. Mm-hmm. And I watched the episode, we get it in Australia, about 24 hours after it screens in America uh, on Showtime, I think it is. And it was interesting. They normally sort of wrap it on Friday and then you sort of can watch it on Monday is how it happens here. And they'd finish Friday and it was interesting. They, they had a pause in the series and they had their first episode back. And when they paused for the series, it was when Donald Trump had just been indicted. And I was like, this is mm-hmm. incredible. Donald Trump, a sitting president, has been, you know, I mean, a former president's been indicted, you know, et cetera, et cetera. What's going to happen? And they begin... They return to the series and effectively they're like, there's these three terrible things happening. Number one, Donald Trump wasn't just indicted, he's been indicted multiple times. So, you know, like that in a sense is this delegitimization of politics in America. Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, you know, had also sort of come with this charge has been raised. So it's affecting both sides. This is their corruption. You know, this Mm -hmm. is is terrible. We're not used to seeing this in America. This is a disaster. And then the third element, which has since been resolved, but – you know, for a numerous weeks, there was no Speaker of the House, you know. So, like, American okay. politics is in dysfunction. So, the end of the series, end of this episode, they get this, you know, political uh, historian in and he's presidential historian in and he's like, this is the worst I've ever seen it. Like, you know, will there be a republic? You know, this is – we're under so much pressure. This is a disaster. I'm watching this and it's 48 hours after Palestine uh, – sorry, after, um, you know, Hamas has come into Israel. Mm. And I'm like – Watching it going, guys, this is going to get so much worse. Um, so in a sense that this is this is a really difficult time for this to happen because it is – the world is already feeling quite fragile and we've talked about the cascading crises that we're yeah. part of. But it's not just happening. So in 1967 – there was a number of the Arab nations attacked Israel. 1973, it also happened as well. And that then caused, you know, an oil crisis, some of the stagnation. So some of the things we've been talking about, the political order of neoliberalism emerges in response to the economic effects of war in the Middle East, the yes. 1970s. Yes. Um, and so I sort of thought, wow, we're in the 1970s again. To be honest, I'm starting to realise, I think we're almost at a 1930s moment just before World War II. Mm-hmm. And... Um, you know, you you have, but what's happening too is that this is happening at a time of tremendous legitimacy crisis. And let me just explain that quickly. I am going to come back to your cultural. No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Cultural um, answer. I'd mentioned American politics here. Um, this is happening at a time where American politics is experiencing a legitimacy crisis significantly. Uh, Joe Biden, who uh, the Joe Biden's team, Axios just did a report yesterday. They're like, Joe Biden's seemingly doing some good things. America hasn't fallen into recession. He's got the Inflation Reduction Act. They're like, hang on, we're doing some good things here, but it's still a disaster. The, the polling is a disaster. Mm. Uh, you have the other potential candidate. Like we are – it looked like a potential challenger to Donald Trump could emerge on the right and there's some sort of more establishment Republicans are hoping that could be a Nikki Haley or a 
Ron DeSantis or something. It looks like Trump's got that rubbed up. Like Trump, Trump owns the Republican Party now is what it seems like. So you're looking at two very aging men, <laughs> both incredibly unpopular, heading towards an election. And that's the sort of global superpower is where they're at in a legitimacy crisis. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you have the other global superpowers, Russia, in the midst of a war with Ukraine, Putin in a fragile position in some ways, mm -hmm. uh, China, which is the emerging global superpower. Um, Xi, uh, Jinping, uh, Xi Jinping is, is basically also experiencing this economic malaise. There is growing discontent at home. And I could go through mm. all of the different leaders, Rishi Sunak in, in the United Kingdom, Britain, another power, very unpopular, going to lose the next election. Macron, very unpopular, mm. going to lose the next election. The EU, unpopular, in trouble. Like you go across all of the players involved in this, Erdogan who's just thrown his hat into the ring, record inflation, uh, unpopular. So part of the danger at this moment is you have a lot of leaders, oh, I'm sorry, Iran, mm. who's behind the axe, some tremendous protests since the death of uh, Masa Amini. Another young woman was was killed with an engagement with the morality piece for not wearing uh, a veil. You've got a bunch of all the players are experiencing tremendous legitimacy crisis. Uh, let me add another thing. This war we're seeing is at a moment when social media is having a legitimacy crisis and yes. adding to the legitimacy crisis. Watching this war on Twitter or now called X, and this is not a pro Elon Musk or anti Elon Musk comment, but the disinformation is unbelievable. Mm. So not only have you got disinformation coming out of the two camps, you've also got, I saw this something like two thirds of some of the disinformation coming out for pro Israel is coming from India because India and the BJP is aligned to uh, Israel and they mm -hmm. want to support Israel because their Muslim majority is aligned. So every, the, 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 the networked effects of this conflict yeah. are simply unbelievable. Now, the other thing that's happened is we're also having a legitimacy crisis for the traditional American, let's call it the traditional neoconservative American political platform, which supports Israel, whatever, because there's people like the terrorist attack was terrible. But if Israel just goes in and flattens Gaza, it's going to create huge problems for legitimacy of America's sort of link to, to Israel. Mm -hmm. that, I'm not, that's not me saying that point. That's me saying what some people are saying. Yeah. Right. So the traditional America always backing Israel regardless of what, that has a legitimacy crisis. At the same time, those who are supporting this, the, the cause of Palestinian liberation also have a legitimacy crisis because Hamas's actions were reprehensible and, and there are people looking at Palestinians' uh, advocates, and I'm not talking – this is, again, not everyone, mm -hmm. but that has a legitimacy crisis because there's people who are refusing to condemn Hamas's actions. So – this is also happening at a time where we're going through this great moral resetting of the software. Yeah. <laughs> so what you've seen, particularly in the culture war in the US, is one of the ways you could look at the culture war, not just in the US, but I'd say the particularly English-speaking world, but it bleeds out into the rest of the world, is we've moved from a liberal understanding, which is individual rights, 
uh, not so much based on identity, uh, sort of an equal playing field when it comes to free speech and law, to more of an intersectional critical theory approach, which is, no, understanding that there is systemic injustice, systemic oppression, uh, that they're the oppressed and the oppressor. How do we recognize those things? Because does the liberal vision mean that some people get unfairly, uh, you know, it's equity versus equality, you know, yep. some people need lifting up. Both of those things are going through a legitimacy crisis in this. And particularly also, as you've seen, really since 2020, and a lot of American institutions began to bring in the software of intersectionality. And that sort of works when it's clearly like, I don't know, men versus women or uh, historical racial injustice in the US. But what does that, how does that work when you've got Israelis who see themselves as the indigenous people, who mm -hmm. see themselves with a history of 2,000 years of, of anti-Semitism, who mm -hmm. feel very vulnerable at this point of time mm -hmm. and who have just experienced this, what looks like an incredibly racially motivated terroristic attack of hatred. On the other side, you've got Palestinians who also see themselves as the indigenous people, mm -hmm. who also see themselves as the oppressed mm -hmm. people, who feel that they're experiencing a disproportionate attack that is affecting civilians and children are dying. Uh, how does that go through the intersectional system and what you're seeing is this split? Yeah. So you're seeing some people who are like, I was on board with this, but the sort of diversity, equity, inclusion people now are starting to sound incredibly anti-Semitic and you're seeing some outrageous stuff. So there mm. is some outrageous examples of anti-Semitism occurring on US campuses. You've got universities, Ivy League universities in the US who are refusing to condemn the actions of Hamas and you've got then people who are liberals who are supporting them, many of them Jewish Americans, withdrawing their funds. So you're seeing this massive short-circuiting of the sort of new moral software that people were trying to put into the system because it's struggling to deal with the complexity and the nuance of mm. the situation where it's not as simple as who is the oppressed and who is the oppressor. And uh, you're seeing the culture war, in a sense, be short-circuited by this. It's making the culture war worse. It's globalizing the culture war. It's making this the prime issue, but it's also showing you the significant limitations and legitimacy crisis within the culture war. It's a lot of stuff to process. It is tremendous <laughs> amount of very stuff. Very gray zone to me. It is yeah. super gray zone. So, I mean, okay. Again, we could talk for hours. And again, too, I realize this is this is you know affects real people, and you know this is affecting real people now, and it has a real danger. So, I'll just say a couple of things on gray zone, and then I think I'll, I'll sort of move in a different direction. But I think that neoliberalism at the end of the day, and we've talked about this before, was the effective government letting the market do its magical thing, but also there was an element of management. In mm -hmm. a sense, what we saw in neoliberalism was a sort of technocratic moving away from leadership to management um, that effectively, if we just get everything in its right place, the world can just run along, the market will run things, uh, government will support that, and we can manage our way through crises. Uh, you saw kind of me with COVID, there was this sense of like, well, we can manage our way through this. Um, and, you know, we can deal with the 
issues of historic and systemic racism through just having the right programs, the right HR departments. Uh, you know, we can deal with sexism by managing it in this particular way. And in a sense, the Ukraine war has been that, like trying to manage the Ukraine war by supplying Ukraine, trying to not to let it go beyond and become a bigger thing. Uh, we're trying to manage the economy. Oh, sorry, the, the, oh, we are. We're trying to manage the economy and, and, you know, try and like have a soft landing of bringing interest rates down so we don't head into a recession. We're trying to manage the environmental challenges that we have of, of you know, net zero and, and all of these things. And we're trying to do this all in a particular way without affecting anyone really that too much, particularly in the West. Mm. I think this is the thing that is starting to trip things over. <laughs> like, um, I don't know how you manage this. I mean, they're, they're trying to manage at the moment. This doesn't go beyond this current rules of engagement. But the potential of this to spill into a regional war, we yeah. already saw a terrorist attack in um, uh, uh, in Holland. It was Belgium. Holland, Belgium. Okay, it was a Euro qualifier between I think it was Sweden and Belgium, where two Swedish fans were killed. Uh, where a gentleman inspired by this, we've seen some a killing of a Palestinian family in the US by someone who was angered about this. A uh, young boy was killed there. So number one, the potential. I know the UK Terrorism Task Force Cobra met in the last 24 hours to talk about the potential of this. So we could see a new wave of terrorism, but then we could also see, as we talked about, spilling over into a regional war where you've got the real difficulty of the US trying to support Ukraine mm. and Israel, mm. the US possibly becoming more and more involved in this. If you go back to the Vietnam War, it never was like the US just rolled up and all the troops landed like it was D-Day. Uh, it was always some advisors came and then a few more troops and a few more troops. And so, you know, you have the potential of this spilling over into something quite chaotic and complex. So I think what we're seeing is twofold. One is we're struggling to manage all these crises. And I think we've gone from, you look at US presidents trying to broker peace in the Middle East to now we're just trying to stop World War III. Yeah. That's where we're at. Secondly, what you're also seeing is you're seeing a definite split in the world. This is turbocharged the split in the world. When Ukraine happened, uh, uh, you saw the US try and get an international coalition, particularly around sanctions. Uh, George H. Bush in, in World War, uh, Gulf War I was able to get this big coalition, even of Muslim nations, to go and fight against Saddam. They're not able to do that anymore. You yeah. saw that many nations in the world weren't willing to go along with the war in Ukraine. That's even turbocharged now. The global south is very much looking at the West, and even the West is splitting on mm. this. And you are seeing that uh, in the UK Labor Party, in the Australian Labor Party, in the Democrats in the US, there's tremendous internal, even, even on the American sort of harder right, there's even a split of which way should we go. And so you're seeing the political order with America as the sole superpower in the world is moving to a much more multipolar world. That's one mm. thing we're seeing. That is a significant shift away from neoliberalism where you had America as the dominant sort of guarantor of global security and then the world could just trade with each other and we're all heading to this happy place. I think this is the beginning of the end of that as we know it. So we're mm. going to see a much more blocked world of blocks and coalitions, but it's also a far more destabilized world yeah. is what we're entering. So I think it's it's the end of that order. Yeah, which we've been, I guess, sensing the uh, the tremors of for a long time. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and and I mean, yeah, the 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 third front would be if something happens in the Pacific, 
Um, there has been tensions between, uh, or South China Sea tensions between the Philippines and, and China. This is also mm-hmm. happening, and the issue of Taiwan and the upcoming Taiwanese elections looms large uh, in this as well. So we are definitely this will have economic effects. Just in 1973, it had like mm-hmm. we're already seeing the price of oil go up, um, and we have. Uh, numerous elections coming in Western countries, particularly in the US. Yeah. And just once, you know, we, we just saw the, the um, I think we also could see a significant destabilization of people moving out. Uh, numerous of the Arab and Muslim nations around are saying, we're not going to take any Palestinians. There was an Egyptian mm-hmm. official which said, we're not going to take them. Europe, you're into human rights. You can have them all. We saw how the further right uh, was emboldened by the Syrian refugee crisis. This could be more refugees coming into Europe. Uh, so I think you already saw Europe swinging to the further reaches of the right. You're going to see that possibly accelerate. So this will change the political, economic, and I think it's changing the social order. This is one of those transformative events, just as as Ukraine was, but I think this has the potential to be much bigger uh, than Ukraine. Mm. It's helpful to have all of those kind of um, contextual understandings. I wonder, uh, you know, I guess asking on behalf of listeners, um, what what do we do with this? Yeah. Well, I, I think that um, having background is really understand uh, helpful. Yeah. And I think that partially what we're seeing is the binary easy solution world that we've been sold uh, where, you know, we just have to do the right things and 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 tick box A and B and, and the world will slide to a utopia mm. is being smashed. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and, and I think that this drives us to prayer, you know, and um, there is a real need to intercede for the world to not uh, – fall into a significant conflict here. Yeah. I'd say that first. Secondly, I think that partially what we're seeing in the cultural element of this is that, you know, you have to pick a side and the sort of simplistic frameworks of either good guys or bad guys or oppressed or oppressor, Mm. uh, you know, uh, and I'm not making an argument here for moral equivalence. I just want to really make that clear that I'm not sort of saying the, you know, actions of, of Hamas are equal to the actions of what Israel are doing in Gaza. I'm not, I'm not even going to get into any of that. Mm. Like I'm more saying that I think that, you know, we need to pray for the innocents. We need to pray for leaders. We need to pray for nations. And the fleshly order of the world, which exists, we're seeing the effects of. Mm. There is the fleshly order pushes us to the tribal, to the confrontational, to fruits of militaristic prowess and, and strength. It, 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 it calls for revenge and bloodlust. And um, in the fleshly order, the oppressed can be tomorrow's oppressors. Mm. You know? And that's not a compl- – That's not a. if you're hearing that just as a, a, a comment against Israel, it's not. Mm. Um uh, that we're seeing the far-reaching and nuanced implications of sin in personal and systemic forms. Mm. And, um, you know, so I think we need to really intercede and pray. So I would pray that that war is contained. I'd pray for the innocence in this conflict. Uh, I would pray for diplomacy. There is a lot of diplomacy happening behind scenes. There would be mm-hmm. meetings happening across the Middle East, across the world, that we need to pray to avert disaster. 
uh, we need to pray for a solution. I've got to be honest. Like I, I have literally no idea what the solution is here. Like I can explain what's going on. I, I, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, but there, are, there is a church in Gaza. Yep. There's a church in Israel. There is a church in Iran. You know, there is church in America. There, there is church in all these places. And, and uh, you know, I think we need to pray as the people of God, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for, for, you know, the Prince of Peace to reign, even when we don't know what that looks like. I think there's a humility then. I think what the Middle East does is it brings you to humility. Like when you read the books, and I've been reading and you know, I'm reading a book on Soleimani, I'm reading a book on uh, history of Israel and Palestine. It is so darn complex. Mm. And I think there's a humility in the face of that. You know, people just want to put a bumper sticker to say, I'm on, you know, on this side or this is a simple solution. Uh, there isn't. The, the diplomats and people far smarter than us would have worked this out. But, you know, God is in control. God is moving history towards his ends. Um, so I think it's a time to pray even when we can't see clear solutions. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that that's really helpful. And I, and, and I do hope that this brings some humility. I think hubris is part of what is falling with the last political order. Mm. And we're seeing the reality of sin. I think, I think you know, these returning things, I'm not surprised the returningness of, of anti-Semitism. You know, I'm not, I'm not surprised that, that racism and um, violence and, and war and tribalism is still here because we need heaven intersecting with earth and we need good programs and we need good initiatives, but humans in of their own strength, even when we're trying to do justice just in the power of the flesh, will create more problems. And so, yeah, we need God in the midst of this and we need to really, really pray and intercede. And history is filled with great men and women who were ordinary but prayed and interceded. And we may not see the effects of that, uh, but I think now is the time for people to pray. Mm. Well, thank you, Mark. Thank you um, for... How we just navigate uh, a pretty complex space. There's obviously always more to say and more to explore, but I think um, what you've said has been really helpful. Daniel, was there any final questions from your side of the room? Not a question. I did have just the passage come to mind that just as you're talking about how do we pray, um, just the end part of Romans 8. Um, just really stick out. I won't read it now, but if you do, any listeners want to read it, Romans 8, 18 to 27, 28. That yep. looks really good. Mm. Um, creation's groaning. Mm. Yes. Present sufferings. Mm. Yep. Spirit groans and intercedes. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And waits for the sons and daughters of Christ yeah. to, to emerge. And, and I think yeah. at these moments that's where the sons and daughters of Christ emerge. And, yeah. and I just want to say, look, you know, I'm sure there's things that we may have – you know, the, the, this is such a contested issue that, you know, knowing to talk about this, people say, but you didn't emphasise that, but you didn't emphasise mm-hmm. that point. This whole thing is contested, yeah. yeah. you know, and we're aware of that and um, done this off the top of my head. But um, I think in the midst of it, what is uncontested is the call to pray. Mm. And evil evil will be vanquished from the world. Mm. Uh, it's going to happen. That's what we believe in. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we groan. As the Holy Spirit intercedes and groaning when we don't have words. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us and we will see you next week. <laughs>